I want to talk a bit about the theme of masculinity and the phallus in Mo Better Blues, Spike Lee's film from 1990. But it's worth pausing for just a moment to think about the significance of this film, which is so very different than Do the Right Thing, which is so very different than School Days, which is so very different than She's Gotta Have It. And I mean different in terms of the aesthetic of each film. She's Gotta Have It, a black and white film, has at times an experimental style to it. It has a kind of rambling character. School Days, which has a very controlled and narrow narrative, uh, bordering at times on a kind of one-dimensional treatment of characters. Um, then, of course, Do the Right Thing, whose production values are much higher than his first two films, and which employs an entirely different aesthetic in terms of color, in terms of filter, in terms of framing, and the variation of his own cinematic art. Do the Right Thing, of course, in, the, in terms of Spike Lee's uh, trajectory as a filmmaker and icon, is really where he became who we think of when we think of Spike Lee today. It's with Do the Right Thing that Spike Lee emerged as a, quote, uh, controversial filmmaker. I'd, I've never thought that Do the Right Thing was particularly controversial. I don't know how many people would... Uh, you know, at the time have really been able to articulate clearly, unless they wanted to be just outright racists, what was controversial about Do the Right Thing. But as I said in the treatment of uh, Do the Right Thing in previous two podcast pieces, Spike Lee is starting to interrogate in a wider and more comprehensive way with real depth, black life and black people. Even in that small corner of Brooklyn, of poor and working class folks, he is able to, both aesthetically with the camera and narratively with characters and um, small and big plot lines, describe with real depth and, and texture the lives of people in a small place. And in that small place, he has a very specific group in mind. Right? He's really interested in, in Pino and Mookie and Tina, Tina being uh, Mookie's girlfriend, a minor character, but nevertheless part of really the core young characters who I would describe as sort of early 20s, um, sort of in the midst of important transitions in life in terms of, you know, uh, they're no longer teenagers, but they're not. Uh, older adults. They're not full-fledged adults. They're in, suspended in this in-between space in their characters uh, and their their substance as people on screen really reflect that stage of life, really finding their own way, um, not fixed, but that's also part of the portrait of a working-class neighborhood, that we're really talking about a specific kind of class of uh, economic class of people, um, but also a multicultural space in which what that class means uh, resonates very differently across gender, uh, language, and nationality. But when he moves to Mo Better Blues, it's really interesting to me to see the innovations that Spike Lee makes at two levels. One, in terms of production values, is very much like Do the Right Thing. It's a high production value film. It's shot with a, a, a kind of uh, lush 
uh, camera. It has a bit of a haze to it. Uh, but it also has a very tight control of its own narrative, its own transitions that show uh, at least uh, uh, more care and patience than something like School Days or She's Got a Habit, which probably has to do with budget, which probably also has to do with just experience as a filmmaker. But also says something about Spike Lee and his own emerging art form. In that aesthetic, right, in, in uh, Mo' Better Blues is another innovation or another twist in his long story about how to put black bodies on screen. And so if we just watch bits and pieces of Mo' Better Blues, especially scenes inside the club, musical scenes, you see Spike Lee's constant reinvention of the possibilities of the camera for filming and articulating black bodies. And I say articulating because that's part of the craft of Spike Lee's own overcoming of the limitations of the camera as we know it. The camera, again, designed to target, to photograph, and to document uh, light skin, you know, what we would call white people or white skin on screen. So it requires craft, it requires patience, it requires attention. She's Got a Habit does a lot of that work on a very low budget, but nevertheless does really important work across a range of shades of, of black uh, skin. And you see the same in School Days with its haze, a haze very much uh, present also in Mo' Better Blues, just with a, a sort of less heavy hand, but also the orangish sepia, sepia tone of School Days. And then she's got a, a, a do the right thing is such an emphatically uh, beautiful celebration of the range of shades among African Americans. It's really one of the most remarkable features of the film. Uh, just watching, right, without following characters, without watching its documentation of black life. So when he turns to Mo Better Blues, it's interesting to me to see him again playing with the possibilities of the camera. That is, he's not content to have found three possibilities, a black and white possibility, a sepia possibility, and the filter that he uses in key scenes in Do the Right Thing, which adds just so much vibrancy to a whole range of shades of skin color. But in Mo' Better Blues, we are inside the jazz club. We are you know, watching characters whose clothing is colorful and vibrant and jumps off the screen and so there's a lot just aesthetically for Spike Lee to interrogate and to document to show not only you know what is the beauty of the range of shades of, of skin among black people but also to identify or situate that range of skins within the beauty that is the subculture of, of the jazz club and jazz musicians and fans especially in that moment in 1990. It was really an incredible moment. It's kind of hard to realize right now, uh, but jazz at the moment had surged as a new possibility for, um, for popular life, uh, especially in New York City and Chicago among African-Americans. And Spike Lee, I think, helps push that movement forward however short-lived it was, I think Mo' Better Blues was instrumental in, in that cultural 
I don't want to say rebirth, but that cultural surge of jazz, getting it out of a real niche audience to a wider audience. The music in the film is absolutely fantastic. There's such an amazing scene that I want to talk about in a moment that um, the actual title track song that has a Shadow played by Wesley Snipes and Bleak played by Denzel Washington playing together and performing on the screen, acting uh, in a way that absolutely embodies the beauty of, of the song. A very pop kind of rendition of a blues song, but uh, an absolutely beautiful rendition. It's just a gorgeous uh, track and worth listening to uh, if you have access to the soundtrack and the streaming service or maybe even your own CD or album collection. But the main theme in the film that I pick up when I teach it and that I think is really important to talk about is the way Spike Lee in Mo Better Blues, despite the class difference, despite the location difference, absolutely revisits and rehearses and reiterates the themes of school days around the formation of masculine identity. It's important to me to note the generational and site difference in Mo Better Blues. In school days, we were talking about college-age students at an HBCU in the South. And when we situate that conversation there, it's fraught with its own particularities, right? Or freighted, I should say, with its own particularities. I'm thinking specifically of what it means to document college students and race, or, and uh, 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 you know, gender identity formation, because we do think 18 to 22, sort of typical age of college students, um, certainly the college student age in school days. That's, we think of that as really like an experimental and formative time of life where these kinds of identities get worked out. So in that way, I think there's something quite natural about documenting the formation of gender identity, uh, especially masculine gender identity in uh, school days on a college campus. When we go to Mo Better Blues, what we see there is another exploration of the same phenomenon. How is it that masculine identity is formed? What's interesting to me is that uh, Spike Lee shifts uh, tone or shifts register a bit in Mo Better Blues around that question. In school days, it was the plain uh, and emphatic misogyny of his characters that, you know, the misogyny of using women in order to, to prove your masculinity and in a way that is often uh, quite hateful and quite, uh, you know, blatantly objectifying. What's interesting to me about Mo Better Blues is Spike Lee explores the exact same dynamic or just, you know, represents the exact same dynamic, but in a much more subtle form. So instead of thinking just the equivalence of misogyny and masculinity, which I think School Days is largely about, Mo Better Blues is this moment where we see the relationship between uh, masculinity and masculine formation in relation to women through simply what I would call the phallus. And we see this in a number of ways, right? The phallus here, I just mean where uh, the penis, right, is rendered uh, not literally, only literally, but also figuratively as a site of power. 
But the phallus is a side of power, not in the abstract, but in its deployment, both against other men, but against other men negotiated through women, through women's bodies, through men, women's psyches, through women's emotional lives, and through women or femininity as an abstraction. So there, in that abstraction, to begin sort of go backwards, there's a really important part of all of the stage performances where Shadow, right, who's a, a secondary player in the group, uh, battles with Bleak, who's the band leader and the primary soloists and soloist and the, the main attraction of the band, that, where they battle for space on the stage. And it's not simply that they battle for space on the uh, space on the stage because each wants to express themselves, that each wants their own voice, you know, out in front. I think seeing it that way is to completely miss the point of the film, and I, I don't think anyone actually ever sees it that way. But rather, and we see this in the positioning of instruments, especially Bleak positioning the trumpet uh, at his uh, waist. There are a number of times where he absolutely dangles it there and Spike Lee films it so that we understand that the instrument is itself the phallus, right? That it is the embodiment of the phallus on the stage. And that abstraction then is not only where the lead, Bleak, asserts his masculinity by you know, being the band leader, by being the main attraction, by being the soloist, by being the strongest uh, presence on the stage but also the way that presence on the stage requires a feminization of Shadow, who is his main contender. He doesn't do the same with the bass player, the drummer, or the piano player. They play a secondary role in the band, and they're not then, in that sense, they are not uh, struggling uh, around the question of the phallus. They are simply accompaniments. They boost the phallic power of Bleak. But Bleak's phallic power when Shadow's uh, musical virtuosity asserts itself, right, that he plays too loud, he plays too long, he doesn't take the cue to step down, it's a contestation over the phallus. But that contestation over the phallus on stage is not just simply that it's an object that two men on stage are battling for, but rather that to win the phallus is to, to feminize the other where the feminization of the other, in this case, Shadow on the, on the stage when Bleak is the band leader, is a degradation of Shadow, right? Feminization as an abject lack of the, of the phallus. So in that way, I think there's a straightforward psychoanalytic um, core to the film, that femininity is the abjection of the phallus, Right, the absence of the phallus and his abject for that reason, and to occupy that space uh, as a man, right, as a cisgendered uh, man, as Shadow is, is to then be filled with rage and revenge, desire for revenge. That exact same dynamic, of course, plays out off screen, or sorry, off stage. And it plays out off stage because what happens is, you know, that bleak and uh, Shadow end up having at the emotional level and sexual level a battle over who will be Clark, the jazz, you know, aspiring jazz singer and one of the two lovers uh, in Bleak's life, 
he doesn't have a relationship with her or Indigo, who uh, a, a, I'll talk about much more in the next podcast piece. But he doesn't date either one of them. He doesn't have a relationship of exclusivity with either of them. They they sleep together. But the that's the point, is that it is not an intervention against a relationship that Bleak has with Clark that's at stake when Shadow makes his play sexually with Clark. Rather, it's an offstage struggle around the phallus, where it's not simply that Shadow is sleeping with Bleak's girlfriend, right? Clark is never uh, Bleak's girlfriend, but let's just imagine that. That is not anything, it has nothing to do with what uh, the emotional life of that conflict is between Bleak and Shadow. It is rather a battle over the phallus that is just an extension off the stage where Bleak, uh, sorry, but for Bleak, when Shadow sleeps with Clark, it, it feminizes Bleak. And that's the source of his rage and despair. And that, in that way, what's happening on the stage and off the stage is about the abjection of, of femininity, the abjection of women, figuratively, and in this case, uh, psychically uh, uh, off the stage. The feminization of, of one or the other not for the sake of that as a form of humiliation, but because the feminization of one is the seizing of the phallus by the other. But one of the things I think that's important about Spike Lee's film is that it is not a psychoanalytic practice alone. What he is interested in is documenting um, in those moments when it is off the stage just what that consequence of the psychic battle around feminization uh, means, and the phallus means, for actual women in the world, Clark and Indigo. That is, that what is initially the, the psychic battle on the stage around who possesses the phallus as band leader and, and lead soloist becomes the same around Clark and Clark's body, which ends up being the degradation of women broadly as the playground of men's psychic formation. So it is one thing to work at the abstract level on stage, which has its own problematic features, and I think Lee is quite clear about that. But then we enter the, an entirely new level of discourse uh, in terms of the ethical and political urgency of it when it is offstage and that the psychic battle is being played out across women's actual bodies and personhood. And so again, it ends up being a reiteration of the theme of masculinity being formed literally on the back or across the bodies of women. Whereas it was an outright violent misogyny in school days, especially in the case of Giancarlo Esposito's character, Big Brother Almighty, uh, that where he he consigns his girlfriend to sexual assault in order to, to elevate the manhood not only of half-pint Spike Lee's character, but of his entire fraternity, right? To make masculine identity, bonding, and formation happen through sexual violence. We don't have that in Mo' Better Blues, but what we do have in Mo' Better Blues is what we might think of as just a derivative form 
of that same violence. It's the same violence because it understands masculine identity formation as something that happens through the control manipulation of abject bodies, women's bodies, bodies that men don't want. And in order to express their masculinity or form their masculine identity to seize this phallic identity or this phallic power, one has to avoid any suggestion that one is tainted by that femininity, right? that, any, that, that one is, is tainted by women. And the way you avoid that stain or that taint of, of femininity is to exercise complete control at a distance. And so the manipulation of Clark, who is her own character and has her own agency in the film, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm really seeing, talking about it through uh, the eyes, how it's seen by Bleak and Shadow. That Clark is simply there as someone to be controlled and therefore to gain distance from. And there's an interesting paradox there that is sexual intercourse, right? Which is literally two bodies, you know, collapsed into one another is exactly where psychically the phallus is wrested from contest, right? And masculinity achieves its distance, paradoxically, again, through an act of ultimate physical intimacy. But the psychic distance is exactly what masculine formation means what phallic power means and i think spike lee is absolutely critical of that i'll talk next time about uh, in the next piece about domesticity and uh what the domestic sphere means and what indigo means uh for bleak but i think it's enough to say here that what saves bleak is not necessarily or not only although it is in part indigo the woman right what saves Bleak is that there is something about his relationship at the very end of the film with Indigo that liberates him from the phallic, from that sense of control of femininity through sexual manipulation, through uh, co sexual uh, contestation between men over women's bodies, or wresting the phallus from one another on the stage. His liberation from that is exactly what liberates him to be a different kind of a man, to be a different kind of masculinity. And so one of the things I'll talk about next time, just to give us sort of give away the conclusion, is that I think that Spike Lee is trying to say that the only that that it's not that domesticity is an inherent good, but that there's something about the configuration of domesticity in the case of Bleak and Indigo that is completely different than the formation of masculinity that makes the plot work for the entire film between Bleak and Shadow. Because that commitment to phallic power is fundamentally destructive. It's destructive of music, right? It blocks one another, it blocks the other from their own expression of their beauty, right? That is that each musician has something to say. But the battle for the phallus means someone has to say less, someone has to be less beautiful. And that's exactly the violence that men do to one another in this, in this battle for the phallus that then gets deployed as forms of misogyny, right? The manipulation and control of women in order to assert masculinity and feminize, which is always abject as a category, 
the other man in the psychic space and the physical space where there is only one phallus. Now, the theme song, uh, Mo Better Blues, is really, uh, it's a beautiful song, but if we watch that scene, and I, I would highly encourage it, it's, it's at an amazing moment in the film in terms of the emotional uh, trajectory of Bleak's character. And Bleak and Shadow play, but they don't play against each other. It's the one musical piece where they really don't play against each other, where one is not there to defeat the other. And they are, in that way, um, for a moment, the kind of masculinity that I think Spike Lee envisions at the very, very end of the film for Bleak himself. That is, men capable of being men in their vulnerable beauty without that beauty being wrested from other men, without that sense of beauty being tied to phallic power. They de-phallicize themselves in the performance, not through some sort of conversation, not through some sort of therapy, but they de-phallicize themselves exactly in the moment where they allow one another to be beautiful. They allow one another to be great. That is, they allow themselves to be different kinds of men. 